Welcome to Head to Toe, stories from the history and future of healthcare. Hello and welcome to Head to Toe, the third season of stories from the history and future of healthcare. I'm your host, Marie McMillan, and I am a nurse with a microphone, so buckle up. Today's episode falls in the category of extraordinary stories. Those of you who have been listening this year know that in 2018, I'm recording conversations in three different categories, extraordinary stories, trending topics, and career profiles. Today, we talk with Nina Ng, a nurse administrator with a background in emergency nursing. She took the time to share with us her experiences at, as an administrator and wellness coordinator for volunteers and healthcare NGOs in Iraq during wartime. She illustrates the refugee experience, streamlining care in trauma-laden settings, and what the workplace is like when you can hear bombs in the distance. It's heavy stuff, but it is worth the listen, especially for those of you out there interested in humanitarian work. Please enjoy. So welcome to Head to Toe. Nina, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I am a New York City native, born and raised here. And I started off my nursing career as an emergency room nurse. So that's where all of my clinical background comes from. And I've also spent some time working in nursing leadership as a patient care director, overseeing 100 employees at one point, and currently working as an assistant director of nursing. In between, I also worked as a travel nurse, lived in a couple of different cities. And through that venue, I came across this position as an assistant coordinator for a nonprofit organization group that worked in Iraq last year during the battle for Mosul. But it's been extremely fulfilling and I'm looking forward to What's next? Had you always wanted to do humanitarian work, or this was just something that kind of popped up that you were like, oh, I'm, an, I'm interested in that? I first got a taste of humanitarian work in 2012. I was still a ER nurse at the time. A coworker and I decided to look up an organization and go on a trip. We went to Haiti with a group for a week, and that was the first time I was exposed to humanitarian work. After that, my career accelerated a bit once I moved towards hospital leadership and worked on finishing my master's. So during maybe three or four years, I had taken a step back from going into that type of field work. And when I left administration to pursue traveling, that's when I felt myself drawn back into the humanitarian field. And that's when I got the opportunity to go to Iraq. And even before going to Iraq, I began reconnecting with some folks I had met in Haiti. And I took a couple of trips on my own to see what I could do in conjunction with some of the orphanages there. So I feel like it's always been something in my heart as soon as I discovered it. And in that sense, it was a bit accidental because I didn't plan for it in my career. I didn't necessarily think about it when I was in college or high school. But I am really glad that I found my way back there. Mm -hmm. 
What were conditions like when you were working in Iraq, and and what kind of healthcare work were you doing there? I worked under the administration umbrella as an assistant coordinator for what we called the trauma and referral systems pathway. So we dealt with patient movement and quality of care, helped manage certain aspects, including personnel and operations. This involved our overseas and international volunteers, as well as locals who were contracted to work with us, whether as interpreters or any other positions like office assistants. In terms of working conditions, I was stationed out of a city in Iraq called Erbil, which is a fully functioning city. There's water, electricity, you can walk out on the street and feel relatively safe, pick up a cab or find a, a pizza hut nearby. And this particular city is in a region of Iraq called Kurdistan. And much of this I didn't know prior to my deployment. Our purpose there was to help the civilians in Mosul. So when I was in the city, I felt pretty safe. We lived and worked out of a four-bedroom house. Quite often, my coworkers and I didn't lock our doors. We felt safe enough to go out for a jog or go for a walk down the street to get dinner at a local restaurant. And to my surprise, I was never, I never felt like I was judged for my appearance. And I'm a Chinese-American female, 30 years old, and I speak fluent English, so it's very apparent that I'm an American. And in in Iraq, Americans do stand out. There are a lot of folks who volunteer from other parts of the world, such as France, Italy, Australia, Canada, and so on. The working conditions in Erbil are much like anywhere else, and I never had a lot of fear when I was in that area. Mosul is a different story. Mosul is where the war front was, and I only ventured out there a handful of times and to other parts of Iraq outside of the Kurdistan region. And in those instances, there was definitely more fear in terms of our safety and what kind of risks we were taking, even being on the road. But all in all, while I was in my work mode and had certain tasks that I needed to do throughout the day, it it didn't save me so much. And I know it sounds crazy because there were times when we heard gunshots in the background and we could go to the rooftop of where we were stationed and see smoke from bombs and military activity. During the drives over from Erbil to Mosul, we would come across military checkpoints where there were armed guards and we would be asked to show certain documents. So that sometimes crossing those checkpoints were scary as well because we wouldn't know if we'd get stopped for anything. And we, although we hired translators, we didn't always have mm. them with us. So there's definitely a degree of fear, but it is an experience that I can't compare to anything else. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. What made your work extraordinary to you? 
the impact of our presence alone and being able to help a group of people. In Mosul, the civilians were being driven out of their homes and out of their city. Essentially, the government had dropped flyers into the towns and alerted them that a war is about to rage and exit like bridges and tunnels and whatever else surrounding the city were being cut off. So imagine one day you're being told you have to evacuate your home and you're leaving with whatever you can carry in your hands, your, your children, and you're just walking away. And at the same time, active attacks are going on between the government and allied militia um, terrorist forces, presumably ISIS. So what was most touching to me was this profound sense of appreciation from the civilians we took care of. Even in their most vulnerable state, they would still make attempts to be polite and smile despite often the language barrier. They were not greedy in terms of what kind of care they were looking to receive. They just wanted to feel safe for a moment. And it's very different from healthcare in the United States or a so-called first world country. Mm-hmm. And at the core of it, it's, and there were moments when we felt like we couldn't do enough for them, whether it had to do with the circumstances, personnel or equipment. And as I mentioned before, our presence, one particular person said this to me, he said, the fact that you took the time out of your life to enter our country knowing what kind of reputation it has around the world and taking a risk to just be with us and to make whatever attempts you can to help us, that meant everything to these types of patients. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was extremely rewarding and unlike anything I'd ever felt. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely their sense of normal is completely different from, you know, over here, for sure, for sure. Um, it, were you working, um, it sounds like most of the time you were in the other city, but when you were in Mosul, were you ever directly in, in the hospitals that you were helping manage? I did pay visits to several of the hospitals, and now, some of the hospitals are actual structures, and some of them, we call them field hospitals, where they're made up of tents and makeshift structures. So yes, I did spend some time in each of those areas talking to their staff and seeing what we could do to collaborate and improve care. And also the interesting part about my group's involvement is we set up a care point called a trauma stabilization point. And these otherwise shortened to TSPs. These TSPs were the care points closest to where the front line of the war was. And that was unique because the closest field hospital from certain TSPs was at least 30 minutes out. And in the world of trauma, nursing, or medicine, that's already far too much time if someone's bleeding heavily or sustained certain types of injuries that just can't wait that long. And I did spend a couple of times 
working at the TSPs, Ian one time staying there overnight, the TSPs were strategically placed in abandoned homes. So there was still a good amount of shelter, and I went in the earlier part of last year. The operation lasted until July of 2017 when the battle was officially over. And during the times that I visited, there was still Wi-Fi, there was electricity, we had portable heating units, we had food to eat, and everyone got together at night in terms of living conditions, had sleeping bags and blankets just in one or two of the rooms of the house. And in a sense, that built a lot of the camaraderie and it got the group closer. A lot of the volunteers rotated in and out on two-week deployments. So they had to catch up to one another at a quick speed and learn how to work together cohesively as a team. So in some ways, the close working environment and extenuating circumstances of being in this risky place made a lot of the volunteers grow closer and rely on one another perhaps differently than we would here in the United States. The interesting thing about this particular war we're involved in, there were some days when nothing would happen and there would be no influx of patients. And then, of course, there were days when there were mass casualties and a lot of patients would come in, more than we could handle. But during the off days where you had a lot of hours and free time, some of the volunteers mentioned it was, in a strange sense, relaxing because you are on duty, but you have this time to read a book and being cut off from much of the world, aside from a little bit of cellular connection. You're you're really in an isolated place with a, a group of people. You do have the choice to, of course, get to know one another, but a lot of volunteers felt like this was a nice time for them to quietly reflect on their own lives or, like I said, enjoy reading a book or just doing something that's a little less active from all the maybe social media or whatever else, TV and outdoor activities that we might normally, you know, expose ourselves to back home. Yeah, totally. How has uh, your your work, specifically your humanitarian work, affected your life outside of? I would say it has changed me in a very, very impactful way. I stayed on with this group working as their wellness consultant. And in this role, I debrief with volunteers as they return from their missions. One of the aspects that I can appreciate about this group is making sure that our volunteers are well, because we do see a lot of traumatizing patient presentations or there are a lot of mental health aspects as well, just being in this world that is completely different from anything we have ever known. And it's not the same as watching something on TV or in a movie. Having experienced it in reality, it it affects a person, no matter how strong you are as a healthcare provider or a healthcare leader. So I, I feel like I've found a type of work that has spoken to me so strongly and continues to today that I can't imagine doing anything else for the rest of my life. And I'm looking for ways to integrate that into my career as a healthcare leader 
back home. When reflecting on your time there in Iraq, was there ever an instance or an anecdote, it could be something as simple as you know a small interaction with somebody else, that made you felt like, yes, I made a difference in this person's life today? Yes. There's one particular moment that I don't think I will ever forget for the rest of my life. As my group and I were driving from Erbil towards Mosul to get to the trauma stabilization point, I remember as we got closer to Mosul, there were young children on, I don't even know if I call them sidewalks, they were just standing around the road that we were driving past, you know, looking like they haven't showered in days, not having shoes on their feet, but some of them playing. And while we were driving by, the first one of the first children that we came across, he held up his two little fingers towards us, making a peace sign, no expression so much on his face. Couldn't even imagine what was going through his head. But he held up his peace sign towards us, still as can be, and that was it as we drove by. And it was such an impactful moment. I didn't know how to respond. I And it kept happening as we drove by more children. They didn't say a word. They didn't wave. They didn't smile or frown, I suppose, or cry. But they, it felt like they knew what we were there for. I took that as a symbol they were sharing with us, saying, this is all we want in our lives. We're just looking for peace. They're, they're children. They don't know. They probably don't understand what's going on. They are seeing things that no child in the world should have to see. And that's something that will stay with me forever. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's that is a powerful image. And images are something we do take with us the rest of our lives. And yeah, that was a powerful story. Thank you. What would your advice be for healthcare professionals out there who are interested in humanitarian work or working in more dangerous war-torn areas, but they're kind of afraid to do so or don't know how to get involved? I feel the best way to get involved is to begin by a broad search. You can find many organizations online and one that may suit you, read about what kind of work they're doing in various areas. And whenever a disaster comes up, even within the States, when, you know, the hurricanes hit Houston, Puerto Rico, and some of these more local areas to us, there are, those are great opportunities to go somewhere for, let's say, a week or two. And I also know a few hospitals in New York City had sent their own teams there. So reaching out to your institution and seeing what kind of involvement they may have with this type of work. But the biggest piece of action one can do is to sign up and go because you'll never feel fully prepared. No amount of reading or off-site training can prepare you for these types of conditions. But once you get through it, you'll see that Many of our skills as nurses and healthcare providers can easily be applied to the different settings, whether it's a natural disaster or a war zone or just a, a place that is impoverished. And then reaching out to 
people or trying to look for stories. Certain organizations have, many of them actually, probably have their volunteers and staff write maybe blurbs online. I know people have blogs, they do podcasts, talking about their experiences. And listening to that makes it feel a little bit more real. The terms, in terms of overcoming a fear for working in a war zone, that is also something that I think you just have to experience to see if that is for you. And to some degree, you do have to have that initial courage to go out there. And yes, there are risks involved. And I will say, initially when I signed up, I didn't feel so afraid. I went I went there, did my job. But about three or four weeks into it, I started letting my own fears take over. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to come back and digest that because when you can't overcome that, it paralyzes you and you're no longer able to work. Many, many and most volunteers do very well. There's never any guarantee for your safety, but as we see the world today, there's no guarantee of that anywhere in any big city, in New York City, Las Vegas, Manchester, or Barcelona. So it's more just educating yourself, using the resources you have, reaching out to contacts. And like I said, there are plenty of organizations that can walk one through what a volunteer experience is like. And if you don't want to jump straight into, let's say, going for a disaster response or going into an active war zone, then there are plenty of other arenas that you can explore. Like myself, for example, I started off in Haiti and this was two years after the the big earthquake. So I was there at a relatively calm time, but the country was still in much need of healthcare and additional assistance. Yeah, that's a good example. Are there are there other sort of specific things you as a wellness coordinator like suggest to the volunteers? Other than like, you know, make sure you keep in touch but also keep time for yourself. Right. So so far being relatively new in my role, I've only spoken to volunteers who have returned from Iraq and also Dominica. And the next phase would be for me to reach out to these volunteers before their deployment and serve as a resource during. So based on the work I've done so far, I have encouraged those who have come back to find ways to share their stories. And I felt this way myself when I first returned, that a lot of people back home, close friends or family, it was very difficult to share my stories with them. In a way, yes, because they, they'll never fully understand, but it you also feel like maybe you're burdening somebody else by sharing such stark details and things that may depress others. So I find that, um, and many of the volunteers vocalize this, if they stay in touch with people in this circle who understand their circumstances or reach out to those who have more experience, myself, for example, when I first came back, I tried to slowly talk to friends and family and eventually, I knew I had to contact some of the doctors and nurses that I work with who have done this for a much longer time. And that gave me a lot of insight. So it's just about reaching out to people who can understand where you're coming from. And at the same time, 
looking for those in your personal circle who, although they might not understand entirely where you're coming from, but are willing to at least try and, and listen and just be there for you and to support you. It, it takes a lot to integrate back into the lifestyle here. You're coming from somewhere where people don't have food to eat, people have you know lost their limbs or their children, and you're coming back to a world where we have all these things accessible. In fact, maybe more. We're driving cars. We have comfortable apartments. We don't think about not having food, electricity, or water. So the the transition is what I focused on the most in my role as a wellness consultant and just also being the listening ear myself, having been there and having an understanding. And that certainly helps when you can understand the the lingo and what had uh, transpired. Yeah, I think uh, debriefing after, you know, big incidents like that, it's so important for for people in healthcare at the bedside or or, or beyond. I think that, that it doesn't happen enough. It, that's just coming from my own clinical experience. You know, anytime there's an event at work and, it, you know, just it just tears everybody down, but you have to keep you have to keep going because people keep coming into the into the hospital you know you have to keep you have to keep taking care of people so it's it's good to take some time to stop and debrief about that so I'm, I'm glad that that's happening in in the field of humanitarian work as well and that's that's so important to have wellness consultants like yourself to help support those people who go out there and they risk their necks to go help strangers who are in like the worst parts of the world so so thank you and congratulations on your work I would say the more more thank you than anything thank you I appreciate your kind words Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, and thank you for all your work to make the world a better place. And yeah, you had some really awesome things to say, Nina. Thank you so much. Um, if listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a way that they can do that? Absolutely. They can email me. Listeners, please feel free to reach out to me. I would be happy to answer any questions or provide guidance on what steps can be taken to ensure your involvement. Thank you so much for having me yeah. on, Marie. I oh. really appreciate the time. Of course. Of course. Yeah, it was very cool. Um, wow. There you have it. Okay, before we go, I need to step on a small soapbox. Okay. Administrators. Hospital administrators get a bad rep among bedside caregivers here in the United States. But we need them as much as they need us. It's the truth. So here's a message to all the admin people out there listening. If Nina can cross a freaking war zone checkpoint to check on her frontline caregivers and coordinate wellness for her volunteers, then I think if you were on the same bleeping campus as the hospital departments you oversee, you too have the power to get up and walk over to the front lines and be visible and supportive of your healthcare employees. Also, if volunteer workers get debriefing, so should healthcare workers here at home. Trauma comes in many forms. Okay, stepping off my soapbox now. Thank you, Nina, for all your awesome insights today. If you are listening and you have done volunteer work abroad and have stories to share, please email me. Let's get in touch and find a way to share your story with the listeners and internet at large because we can all benefit from it, you from telling it and us from hearing it. Also, for those of you who don't know, um, I, uh, Head to Toe just celebrated its second birthday. We're in the third season now. 
We have 20 episodes total so far, including this one. So if you haven't listened to any of the other ones, please go back and check out the rest of the podcast where there are many stories from lots of cool people. Healthcare people, retired nurses, doctors, people with cool things to say about cool things. Apparently it's all cool. Cool is the only word I can come up with right now. <laughs> also, for those of you who don't know, Hedgetoe celebrated its second birthday recently. We are now in the third season and there are 20 episodes total, including this one now. So if you haven't heard any of the other episodes in the podcast series, please go back and take a listen. The podcast in its current form is free, and I would love to keep it that way, but I do want to give listeners the opportunity to support the show. Last year, I asked for $1 donations for the first birthday, and this year I asked for $2 donations for its second birthday. The money I received last year helped me purchase some additional recording equipment, and this year I'm hoping the birthday money will continue to support growing head to toe. Special thanks go out to those who have donated so far, Eileen Anderson, Dan Majgosh, and Joyce Oxier. Check the show notes for the link to donations where you can send me $2 or the amount of your choice. Thanks for listening to Head to Toe. As always, feel free to contact me at macmillanpages at gmail.com or leave a voicemail on the podcast feedback line, 503-512-0185. Thanks for your support, for listening, and again, thanks to Nita Ng for being today's guest. The music from today's podcast is brought to you by Rhombus Rare. Stay tuned for more episodes in May. Until then, take care.